Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. I am your host, Kristen Smith, and today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Carolyn Weaver on. Now, if you've been following Gills Club for a while, you have probably seen Carolyn show up on our social media throughout the past few years, and you might recognize now that she is a doctor now. So we are going to talk about her PhD work looking at epaulet sharks and how she did her PhD in Boston and as well as over in Australia working with Gills Club scientist, Dr. Jody Rummer. We'll also talk about her past work looking at sturgeon and how she has a connection to another Gills Club scientist, Ashley Novak, as well. So sit back and relax and enjoy our interview with the new doctor, Dr. Carolyn Weaver. Welcome back to another Gills Talk podcast. Today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Carolyn Wheeler today. So I'd say a new doctor is in the house for the podcast. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been really excited to be able to have you on the podcast, especially since now I've heard so much about you. We featured your work in the past. You have collaborated with other Gills Club scientists as well. So I'm really excited to have you on. So I um, guess we'll just get started with, as I said, um, a new doctor. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your PhD and what have you been doing with that? Yeah, so I just recently finished my PhD. I'm a co-tutel PhD, which is not super common in the US, but it means that I'm co-enrolled at two universities. So I spent the first half of my PhD at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And when I was there, I worked really closely with the New England Aquarium and their research department there. So I spent about two and a half or three years there. And then I spent the other half of my PhD um, at James Cook University in Townsville. So yeah, I've spent a little time on both places and now I'm done at least at UMass Boston. So that's been really great. Yeah. That's really exciting. So then um, since now um, you're done with Boston, you started with Boston and now you are in yeah. James, at, at James Cook, correct? I'm essentially done at James Cook at the moment as well. It's just uh, kind of finishing up the last stages of edits on my thesis and that sort of thing. But I'll be done in the next few months with uh, James Cook University as well. So yeah, almost done. It's been six years, but I'm ready to kind of move on to the next thing, I think. Yeah. Which is super exciting. Um, I can't wait to hear what a postdoc will be for you um, in your research mm. and, and everything. So you just said six years, a PhD, which is a commitment many scientists spend many, many years working toward their PhD. And it's something we really don't talk about a lot in the podcast in itself. So if you can, if you want to like kind of like walk through the steps of your PhD journey, like you said, not a lot of people do a co-university. So um, kind of like walk through the steps of that. Yeah, definitely. So it's been interesting for me because I've been in a North American university and an Australian university, which is kind of also similar to the European system. And the PhD systems are a little bit different. In the US, they tend to be a bit longer because um, there's usually a component of coursework at the beginning. So the first two and a half years or so, I was doing coursework at UMass, um, as well as doing some teaching assistantships. So that's how I was getting a stipend that's how I was getting paid mm -hmm. um so you're kind of really focusing on that and then maybe doing working on one chapter one research project during that time um so that's what I was doing in the U.S. for a while I was doing a lot of 
coursework and teaching and just doing a bit of work at the aquarium. And then when I came over to JCU, which is in Australia, the system is different. It's a much shorter PhD, but that's because you don't have that coursework component. It's just all research. So I essentially came to Australia and then did the core of my research of my PhD after that. Um, so that's why um, I kind of was at both universities because of the species that I work with, which I can talk about in a minute. But yeah, it's really interesting. I've been in both systems and seen kind of the pros and cons of a really long PhD. And the PhDs here are usually three and a half or four years. So they're a lot shorter. So yeah, it's been very interesting to kind of compare the systems. But either way, it's still a very big commitment. It's a full-on commitment of your time and your yeah energy. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, when you were at UMass and then obviously finishing up at, at James Cook, was there a difference in the feel between the two, if that makes sense. I know um, when I interviewed, oh gosh, was it Melanie? I don't know. There was, I forget what interview it was that um, they grew up and lived in the States and then moved to Australia and just how like the different way of life. And it's not really like the hustle culture in Australia, like it is in the U S. So did you find the same type of feel? Yeah, I think in terms of the universities, it was very different just because at UMass, I was in an environmental science department. And then at James Cook University, I was in a center for coral reef studies. So I was coming from a, a department in UMass where I was probably one of only a few biologists actually in the department. And then I was going to people that really study coral reef fish and actual coral. So that was a huge change for me being around biologists in general. Yeah, I think life in Australia, I think, does seem a little bit slower than the U.S. I really appreciate that. But I was also moving from Boston to yeah. Townsville, Australia, which is like a regional city, very small, different pace of life, which I actually really appreciated. Yeah, I love it here. I think there are cultural differences, but it's an, enough that as an American, you don't feel like completely overwhelmed, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems to be the trend. Everyone that I've interviewed so far <laughs> that has come from the U.S. to Australia have absolutely loved it and kind of planted their feet there for for the yeah. time being. But let's get into the star of the show, the shark research. So yeah. um, I would love to hear then about that shark species and what you were researching about it. Yeah, so for my PhD, I think I was lucky that my PhD was on just one species and I studied yeah. the epaulette shark. So I studied them for the last six years and I worked with them from teeny little embryos in the egg case all the way up to reproducing adults. So my work really covers, I'd say maybe three main topics. I work a lot in physiology. So kind of like what are the processes going on inside of the shark? Um, and in particular, I'm interested in those processes in relation to early growth and development and reproduction um, and life history. So like, what are the different stages of life history? So little tiny babies, juveniles, reproducing adults, things like that. So that's the one thing I'm interested in is these different life stages and kind of what are the energetic costs at each of these life stages? So like which ones are maybe more vulnerable than others? Um, and then my PhD really frames all of that in the context of climate change. So that's a fairly new field of shark research just because it's become obviously a very hot topic but also it's very difficult to study this in sharks for a lot of reasons so um, my work really looks at ocean warming effects so when we increase temperatures how did that play into the life history of um, for my PhD epaulette sharks interesting so then when we're looking at this um you know you're like you just said you're looking at from the 
the pup, the juvenile, all the way then into the adult stage. So you just said you look at it and see what what is the most energy, which one is, or if you're allowed to say that yet, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's tricky. So it's it's really mostly about like shifts of energy. So the work I did when I was at the New England Aquarium, we took um, so epaulet sharks are egg-laying sharks. They lay, they lay these little um, egg cases and they lay two egg cases every two to three weeks usually. And so when I was working at the New England Aquarium, we would take those egg cases and put them under different temperatures that we were predicting for the next century with ocean warming and kind of looking at the effects that has on their development. That's been really interesting work. But I think the main thing is across life history, it's a shift. So when pups are little, you're talking about them putting all their energy into growth and development and getting bigger, right? Because the bigger you are, probably the less likely you're to be eaten by something else on the reef. Yeah. <laughs> but then once you get to a certain point, that transition, then your growth starts to slow down a bit and then you're transitioning into reproduction. So it's hard to say like which one is really more costly, but there are different costs that shift across the life stages, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, so then when you were looking at these different water temperatures were they able to sustain those higher temps were they not able to are we able to not feel like we're going to be losing the epaulet shark as, as our climate mm -hmm. changes the temperatures that we used were 27 29 and 31 degrees c so i think that's like 81 84 and 87 or something like that fahrenheit that's it's very warm it's yeah. very warm um and basically what we found is that the highest temperature, so what the what will you be expecting kind of by the end of the century at current emissions, right? Um, is that their development was definitely hampered. We didn't have any mortalities. That was good. All of the yeah. eggs still hatched at the highest temperature, but I would say just barely. Like they came out a lot smaller, they came out hungrier, their pattern wasn't correctly developed on their body, they had like a lot less spots. Um, and we saw there was some physiological impairments as well. So it is concerning. I think they're kind of by the end of the century at that temperature, they'd be right on the edge of having issues. So obviously if you're not developing and hatching correctly, that's an issue for the species, right? Because you're not having successful reproduction. Mm -hmm. So it's tricky. Yeah, it's not yeah. the best news, but hopefully that's not the whole picture. And maybe the species can adapt over time or they can, you know, potentially relocate a little bit to cooler areas. That's mm -hmm. the hope. Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. So um, as you said, then as they um, were able then to hatch, you're able to see that they were smaller, had different types of defects, but then how do you measure the hunger? Like, were they just eating more than when you were feeding them? Is that, was it, is it just simple as that? Yeah, a bit of that. They were definitely like, I wish I had done this in my actual research. It's something I thought about after. I wish I had done some time trials of feeding to see how quickly they ate all the food that I gave oh. them because I, the ones in the warmest temperatures were much more aggressive about food. I didn't actually measure that, but I did notice that. So when they hatch, they usually have a bit of yolk reserve left over in their digestive tract. That's kind of supposed to help them, we think, transition from being in the egg case to having to hunt and look for food. And so usually it takes them a week at least or two to actually start feeding because they have oh. this reserve. But we found in the highest temperature that they were eating sometimes the day after they hatched. So they were that reserve is probably depleted and it was gone. So they mm. needed to go out and try to get food more quickly. Yeah. So it was super interesting finding from that study. Yeah. That's super interesting. Like these little things that you wouldn't even think to even look at, you know, that yeah. you, that just by like raising the temperature up a few degrees that mm -hmm. 
like you're finding these things out. So then um, you were able to look at that in a lab setting, obviously in Boston in our neck of the woods here. But then um, then in Australia, then you were doing the field work side of things, yeah. correct? Yeah, I was doing a bit of lab and field work there. Yeah. So after I finished all the work with kind of the early life stages, I wanted to flip to the other end and say, okay, now what happens if we change the temperature around in adults that are reproducing? So how does that affect even the process of creating those egg cases in the females? Mm -hmm. um, so that component was done in the lab as well. So I write about a month before COVID kind of hits, so like February and March, 2020, I started developing a breeding colony at James Cook University. So we had Oh, I think at one point we had at least 10, 10 males and females, so we could breed them and really do some fine scale tracking of the reproduction. So that was some of the work that I was doing. We were kind of manipulating temperature there. And then I also did um, quite a bit of field work over there as well. Um, most of which was based at Heron Island, which is on the Southern Great Barrier Reef. And it is just probably one of the best places to go. If you like sharks and rays snorkeling wise, there are so many that you can just see there on any given day. It's a, like a, just picture like a beautiful little coral k tropical island it's yeah it's a good it's a good yeah. place to work yeah <laughs> and there's hundreds if not thousands of epaulet sharks there there are so many you can almost trip over them so it's a oh really good place to study them <laughs> yeah yeah my gosh, it sounds like a dream. Oh my goodness. So then when you're over there doing your field work or then as well as then being in the lab then. Um, so then what did we find then with the adults? Was it almost the same type of findings we were seeing in the juvenile, something different? Yeah, it was, it was similar in a lot of ways. So we had this hypothesis going into the project that, so epaulet sharks only reproduce really half of the year in the wild. And oh. my hypothesis was that that water temperature was what was controlling that starting and stopping along with maybe some other things like change in daylight hours, mm -hmm. but water temperature was probably the cue for them to start okay. reproducing and then once it gets really warm in the summer it shuts it down for the rest of the year so and that's essentially what we saw in the lab was that we could control their egg laying um, by changing the temperature which is really interesting because now we understand the mechanism but it's concerning right because if yeah. water temperatures get above what they experience now it will probably shift and shorten their season when they actually have a window of the you know proper temperatures to lay eggs so again, it's one of those things right now, it doesn't look great. It's possible that over time, they might be able to adapt to these warmer temperatures because epaulet sharks have relatively short generation times. That means like from the time of, you know, birth or hatching to the time of adulthood is relatively short. It's on the order of maybe like a couple of like two to five years from what oh, I've wow. been told, which is short for a shark because some of them yeah. can take like decades, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's possible that they might be able to get enough generations to occur over time that they might be able to adapt, but it's hard to say at this point. Mm. Yeah. So it's a bit of all of a, we'll see. I, yeah. you have to have a bit of positivity because I don't, epaulet sharks are just an odd little shark. They really are. Yeah, and they, they are. can live in some really crazy conditions. They can live without oxygen for hours and they can walk out of the water and do all these things. They are, from all my work with them, they are so resilient that you have to have a bit of positivity that they'll, they'll figure out a way to get around it somehow. Yeah, no, they are such like an interesting species. Like you said, yeah, they can't be without, like without oxygen for hours. They quote unquote walk as well through like those really shallow 
title pools. If anyone's really interested in learning more about epaulette sharks after you're listening to this episode, we interviewed Dr. Jody Rummer. Oh gosh, 2021, 2022. We interviewed her a while ago. So scroll back through the episodes and listen to her. So speaking of Dr. Rummer, that is one of your collaborators that you had then on this project. Yeah, she's my um, supervisor at James Cook University. Yeah, so we work really closely together on all of the epaulette shark work um, yes. that her lab's doing. Now, I know back when I interviewed her, it was right after you two wrapped up um, like one of your um, your field trips that you had out there because she was trying to get our our schedules to match to do almost like a try interview. Yeah. Have you two and her yeah. on it? on at um, the same time, which would have been so cool, but it just didn't work out. So I'm super excited to at least have you on now to hear about everything. So now that we are kind of like wrapped up with your research, are you planning on staying in the epaulette shark world, staying in these Uh coral reef areas where you said there's a plethora of sharks and rays? And I know you're probably like, I'm just like trying to now just like debrief with myself. I don't know what I want to do next. So that's okay too. That's your answer. Yeah. It's a bit of both. Um, I, I've liked studying epaulette sharks and I, I'm still wrapping up a few projects from my PhD that are kind of in the last stages of some changes in writing and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I still have some work to do. Yeah, I'm still just kind of weighing my options, taking a little bit of a breather. I just recently took um, a teaching job. So I'll be teaching introductory biology lab, awesome. that sort of thing. Just in like, you know, the short term for a while while I'm trying to decide what my next move is. Um, I definitely would like to stay in Australia. I'm really happy here. It's a cool place. Um, I actually don't live in Townsville anymore. I live in Melbourne, which is down south and more temperate. So we have a lot of really cool shark species down here uh, that I'm really interested in, like egg layers, like Port Jackson sharks, which I think they're so cute. I actually, in my undergrad, I studied sturgeon, which I think um, you've talked with Ashley Novak on the podcast as well before. She's a good friend of mine, and we worked on sturgeon together back in our undergrad. So I really considered myself like a fish biologist and physiologist before like a shark biologist. Like I really like any fish. So I'd like to stay in the shark world and I, you know, keep getting shark projects thrown at me, but I'm also happy to kind of you know, go, go towards more bony fish work as well, if that's what comes. So I'm, yeah, I'm just kind of considering taking a little bit of a break. I've been in school for the last, uh, 10 years. (laughs) So (laughs) just taking a bit of a pause and reassessing, I think. Yeah, Yeah, of course. No, I, and and I think that's good. And it's something, um, I know that Ashley has said, and then our staff scientist, yeah. Megan, has said, you know, like, it's good to take breaks. It's good to yeah. take breathers between things. Um, and so I think that is great that, you know, you're, you're prioritizing your own mentals and be able yeah. then to figure out the next part. But I'm so happy that you brought up sturgeon and being able to work with them, too, because I think mm-hmm. they're just the coolest fish. I think they are just... They are so cool. And I want to see one in the wild. I've seen one in the labs um, at Maryland University or mm-hmm. U- University of Maryland. And ever since then, I've just been like enthralled with them. How about we talk about that? Because I know Ashley kind of touched about it a little bit on her, her, her podcast. And when she's in the office here, I still like pick her brain <laughs> about it as, <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, so we can talk about that too, because I think it's important to note that you don't always have to work in shark with sharks to be in shark science it can be this evolution and you can use skills to get to another spot yeah yeah exactly I yeah my honors thesis in undergrad was actually on Atlantic sturgeon and then 
in the skills that I learned studying sturgeon, it just so happened that a bunch of people like finished and left our lab and no one else had the same skill set at the time as me. So I got put on a bunch of shark projects just because it's my default. So it really worked out for me. And then I ended there up working on tiger shark. So you just never know yeah. how it's going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. I loved, I worked on, we worked on Atlantic and short nose sturgeon, but my thesis was mostly on Atlantic sturgeon and kind of similar to my work in epilet sharks was looking at reproduction and sturgeon are not sexually dimorphic, externally sexually dimorphic. So it means when you look at them from the outside, you can't tell if it's a male or a female, which is a bit of an issue when you're trying to understand like, why are sturgeon using this river system potentially? Because they're like, kind of like salmon where they spawn in freshwater and they go out into the ocean. So I was working to try to develop, can we use a small blood sample, look at reproductive hormones and try to figure out if it's a male or a female based off of that. Um, so it's like the good kind of non-invasive way to figure yeah. out what the sex of sturgeon is. So that's what my thesis was working on. But because I learned through that how to work on blood and how to conduct ultrasounds, then when opportunity opened up, go to the Bahamas and work on tiger sharks, I was on a plane. So oh, yeah. yeah, I think it's it's really good to know that it's like the skills that you pick up and not the species really that is important. And yeah, it's worked out for me. <laughs> Well, it sounds like that. So then I have a question. Can we find out the sex of the sturgeon by looking at its blood sample? You can. Yeah, it was it's, it was tricky in the river we were working in because it was a non-spawning system, which we kind of knew going into the study. So their hormone levels aren't as high because they're not going to be reproducing anytime soon. Um, but there was a clear delineation between males and females. Females tend to have more estradiol and males tend to have, have more testosterone, particularly the males have a lot more testosterone. Um, so it is possible and it worked pretty well for us. Yeah. So it's a good way to kind of have an idea because basically if you know how many males and females are in a river system, it can tell you about if they're spawning, that mm. ratio can change and it can tell you about the usage of the system. Yeah. So it's really good information for like a fisheries biology perspective. Super interesting. I love it. I love it. So Looking into this, since you didn't start with sharks, um, you were looking at bony fish. Have you always just love our oceans, love fish, love sharks. And there's, there's like, I'm going to be a marine biologist or was it just something that naturally uh, progressed? <laughs> um, I think it's a bit of a weird path. I okay. actually grew up kind of dancing. I was in ballet my whole life growing up. I went to like okay. pre-professional ballet schools and that was my like life focus until the age of 16. I ended up in boarding school at one point for ballet. So I was dancing like 20, 30 hours a week. It felt like sometimes. <laughs> Um, and that was my my life goal. And then I just eventually kind of hit a point where I realized it wasn't going to be for me in the long term. And yeah, I always guess I liked I liked fishing with my dad growing up and I liked watching Shark Week when I was little. And my sister and I were fascinated by whales for some reason. Um, I mean, not for some reason, whales are very cool. Yeah, <laughs> um, It wasn't necessarily sharks for me. And then, yeah, I just did really well in biology in high school and I liked it. And so when I was like, I don't, I don't want to do dance anymore. What am I going to do? I somehow just landed on marine biology. I actually think about this often. I don't really remember what my thought process was, but I just made the decision and went with it and everything worked out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh so. my goodness. Um, I think it is one. I think it's so funny that there is, we just made the joke about it in our office yesterday. We were, uh, we're starting our internship application process here. And one of the answers that they said, I'm like, how can you use your skill sets to be in shark education? And they're like, well, like I'm in the theater at school and like I can use like my 
you know, my skills of being and like, you know, being on stage, being able to talk to a bunch of people. And we see that more and more common that people that were dancers or in the theater are somehow working in sharks or shark education. There's some weird direct <laughs> line because <laughs> it's me. Our, um, we have our, our merchandiser. Emma is in a, a theater background. Our sharks that are ma manager. Heather has a theater and music background. Um, you, um, we also had um, Cynthia Aruch yeah. was in, in dancing too. Yeah. So I think there's a trend. There's a trend for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually was down in Cynthia's lab at the beginning of this year doing a lot of my hormone work and her and I really connected over that. I, I think it's just like dance for me, like being in ballet schools from a young age, it really like teaches discipline and like tenacity. And I think that's just applicable across whatever you end up doing in life. You know, it doesn't matter like if it's arts or science. Yeah. That is really funny though. There's going to be more. We just have to figure it out. There has to be some type of thing. But I think it's like you said, it's, it's that it's, it's the discipline being able to mm. take criticism, especially if you were, you know, mm -hmm. in a dance class or anything like that, you know, you know that that gets thrown at you at any point of time. So yeah, there's definitely some connections for, yeah. <laughs> for, for sure. <laughs> Um, so I think um, as we start to wrap up, I mean, I just have so many other things that I think that I could ask you because you've done so many like such interesting things. Um, but I think let's go back to your PhD for a second or two. And I would love to hear what is the most surprising thing that you find out that you found out through your PhD or something that was maybe just so like unexpected. You're like, I have no idea that this was going to end up this way. So I think one thing that you wouldn't see just from reading my PhD, but just that has really fascinated me has been because I've spent probably four between working in Boston and working in Australia. I probably spent about four years with animals in the lab that I was in charge of that I was, you know, keeping an eye on every single day. One thing that I just thought was so interesting is that sharks really do have their own personalities. And I have no empirical evidence of that in my own PhD, but just from spending time in there with those sharks every day and feeding them every day and watching their behaviors and watching the way they interact with each other. Every time I would go in, I could tell what sharks were going to do because I have watched them so much and they all just yeah. have slightly different behaviors. And it's so interesting. Yeah, I think that was something I didn't expect at all. And even once I have left JCU and they still have some of the sharks from my PhD and they talk about them, I know exactly which shark they're going to be, they're going to say it is that has done something <laughs> because I feel like I know them all and I know their little like nuances. So I think that was something that really surprised me was just the little like behavioral and personality differences that I really saw. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they truly do. We have, um, we just have a small tank here that has two chain dogfish in and we got them yeah. from, the marine, from the Marine biological lab. We got them like, they were the size of my iPhone. They were itty bitty when yeah. <laughs> we, we got them. And in the last years, we've been like seeing them grow. Uh, we have one there. Well, their real names are Hooper and Chief because- obviously. And, um, but then like their nickname for one of them we call is feisty because he is just, you know, he's going to be the one that comes up to the top as we're trying to like put in the food and like pop his head up out of the water and you know, make sure he doesn't jump out. And, um, yeah, so they all do, they really do. It's so interesting. Yeah. I wonder if like, like just because like we work with white sharks down here that, you know, like if they do, we only see them for like for a clip, like a quick glimpse, but you think like even like those larger shark species, if they would have any like characteristics like that. So interesting. It'd be so I, hard to like, do that too. Yeah. I don't really work in movement at all, but I mean, you have to think that some 
some amount, like some proportion of what they do in terms of their movement has to be like individual variation, right? That's yeah. just individuals to some degree do their own thing. Yeah, it's yeah. very hard to it's very hard to quantify that, but super interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I guess, yeah, I guess you're right with that with movement because we see white sharks here that like tend to like their state, like there's one spot along the Cape that we know like every season we're going to see mm -hmm. them here. They almost show up to almost the same date as well. Or then where yeah. others are just like, ah, I'm going to go all yeah. around. <laughs> there's always a couple. Yeah, <laughs> just doing yeah. their own thing. Yeah. Yeah, to do their own thing. But I think to wrap up our interview today, something that we ask every single scientist, which is advice that you would give to your past self. And I think especially with you being able to do a plethora of different things and just wrapping up your PhD, that what would be advice that you would give to yourself? Oh, this is a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think my advice to my probably like pre-PhD, like, or even my bachelor's degree self would be just to relax a little bit. <laughs> Everything mm -hmm. works out for Everything works out for a reason, like stressing over your next step or, you know, little things doesn't really help you get where you're trying to get, but you just have to kind of, you have to work hard, but you also need to just have a little bit of faith. And if things don't work out, like that's, it's fine. It's for everything's for a reason. It really is. Mm -hmm. So I think now that I'm, I'm really embodying that mentality, now that I finished my PhD, I'm like, yes, I don't necessarily have my direct forward plan at the moment, but I'm actually not really worried, which I think is a new mindset for me compared to after my undergrad when I was like oh my gosh I have to get this all sorted right now you know yeah, yeah. I think that is great great advice I think that's anyone can follow that too you know just relax yeah everything's gonna happen for a reason and it's all going to fall in place I think that's good too um just to follow along with anything but I think before we go anywhere that people can follow you on social media to keep up with all your work um, yeah, my Twitter handle, that's where I put most of my science-y stuff. What is my Twitter handle? It's slightly different from my other one, so I get confused. It's at wheel underscore house 23. That's me on Twitter. Perfect. That's where I post like, most of my research and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Awesome. So everyone go follow Carolyn on Twitter to be able to hear more about her work and what she has coming up next once she is done relaxing and going with the flow. So <laughs> with that, I want to say thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a blast being able to hear everything about what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun.